What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Smalley Talk Podcast. This is your infected host, Josh Rinko. Because I just tested positive for COVID. Josh is disgusting, dude. He's got a disgusting. He's got a, a hideous boy, dude. He's got a hideous little virus on him, dude. Uh, no, dude. I Shrinko House is in full uh, lockdown mode. Josh is Josh is HIV positive. Everybody. <laughs> well, we've known that for a long time. That didn't stop you either. He also so. has COVID. He also does have COVID. Uh, proving it's, Fauci like, wrong that you can it's like, have both. That's like a double play, dude. HIV and COVID at the same time. <laughs> that's exactly what that's like. Uh, dude, I'm, I've, I'm worried about you. I told, I told Josh last night, he texted me and, and told me that Katie had, or his wife, um, his queen has come down with a disgusting <laughs> virus of COVID. And I told him I would tell a story. And uh, I don't think he liked the beginning of that story. <laughs> I don't even remember uh, what you dude, said. If, you you say? better pray to God. You better pray to God that you outlive me, dude. Because my eulogy of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That would be a great eulogy. It'd be the best. Uh, it'd be the best um, funeral ever. I don't think I would ever have a funeral. Here's, though. Here, I'll, I'll just I'll read it. I don't care. Do you even finger the story of a wet boy's wet dream? That's the that's the title of the speech. <laughs> and and there's only a select few people who know what that means. Yeah, but. and also just so everybody, oh this this po- this is a perfect place for this. This podcast is brought to you by River Rat USA. <laughs> <laughs> you can't spell raft without rat. Huh? That's true. That's a good. Came up with, I mean, you marketing genius, right there. Came dude. up with that on my uh, bidet the other day. Um. <laughs> um so hey, so, so you know we do have a PhD coming onto the podcast, so we're gonna have to. We're going to have to straighten getting, our act up, dude. We're going to have to we're, behave we're as adults. We're getting all this juvenile stuff out of the way here. <laughs> yeah. We can actually act like adults hey. as soon as he comes on. <laughs> yeah, hey, sir. You, you heard any, any new uh, good dick jokes? Let's get those in right now because <laughs> we're going to have to act like grown adults here in about two seconds. Um, yeah. <clears throat> we, so we wanted to jump on a little early because we have some uh, some new reviews, dude. New reviews. How about you read the first one and I'll read the okay. second one. Uh, I'll, read, I'll read the one from Small Jaw Doll. Free the fight. I, dude, I wish I had a nickname like that, dude. Small Jaw Doll. I can call you Small Jaw Doll if you want. <laughs> Do you know who that is, don't you? <laughs> no, but let's rip this... Let's rip this person off and you can just be the small jawed doll from now on. All right. Sounds good. What's <laughs> <laughs> up, doll? Uh, no, all right. So it says, free the fighter. From one small mouth junkie to another, when I found this podcast, it was exactly what I was looking for. People who live and breathe small mouth fishing. 
especially on a river. Josh and Chris straight clown on here and have a good time. You never know what's coming next, but that keeps me coming back. Stay wet, boys. That's a that's a perfect review. That's very well written. Yeah, and it's got three gushy marks after that. So, <laughs> boom. That's a that's a mainstay on all of our social media. We get a lot of gushy emojis. We get a lot, a lot of gushes. Of yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's true. Gushers. gushers. We, got, we got the gushers out there. <laughs> uh, Thanks. Thank you, small jaw doll. And did you did we ever read the one that you put on social media? By the way. Yeah, that I think so. One? Mm-hmm. You did. Yeah, I read it. Um, so the next one is from Ryan's music box titled best podcast. And it's also a five star review. I love your podcast. I've taken a lot. I think he means to say I've taken a lot from you guys this year and I've had lots of laughs. Keep up the great work. Screw the haters, free the fighter tight lines. Stay safe, Ryan. I love it, dude. That's that's a good one. And I do agree that we should screw the haters. I feel like, you know, it's one of those things that at this point in our, uh, you know, our podcasting career, mm. you know, we, we've got a, we got a few haters and, uh, I think that just means that, you know, we've arrived, you know, Maybe. it's part of it. It's, you know, like Joe Rogan talks about all the time. So, mm. you know, we we're almost to his level. I was we're texting with there. Joe the other day about this. And yeah, I, said, I mean it's a common. When's the problem. last time? When's the last time you heel hook kicked a hater's head right clean off his shoulders? And he said, "Don't <laughs> let it get you down. Let's go to my <laughs> let's go to my private shooting range and smoke weed together." I said, that "Thank dude you, has, Joe uh, Rogan." That dude, dude has a pretty good little little life going there. He's got yeah. a he's got a awesome like gig. He's completely independent. It's pretty pretty neat stuff. So. Yeah, I mean that's obviously the the trajectory we're upon right now. <laughs> we're almost. Yeah, we're close. almost there. Just like a couple <laughs> more, a couple more sleeve, arm sleeve tattoos away, and I'll be, I'll yeah. have a hundred million dollar deal from Spotify. Dude, yeah, that'd be pretty sick. Um, but yeah, uh, so neither one of us have been fishing since uh, our last episode so pretty pretty um it's It's true it's pretty sad it's pretty sad Mm -hmm. uh are the rivers high right now very uh well white river is yeah yeah i noticed i drove over white the other day and it looked like it was pretty muddy but um i have you know we were talking about this the other day over text we definitely have seen an increase in uh guys fishing late into the season which is is cool Mm um cool to see uh, we got started in, you know, doing that, you know, like four or five years ago. And I feel like nobody did it back then. And uh, it's starting to get more and more popular. So, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, guys are catching them too. The so, guys are. Yeah. Like I almost feel less cool about posting winter fish now. So I used to post them and be like, this is epic. Nobody else is doing this. Yeah, now I know. we're just one of many, dude. Yeah, and it's been pretty warm this season so far. We haven't really, I mean, we haven't even had any sort of snow. I mean, there's not really been any ice. It's the coldest it's been is like, you know, what, mid upper 20s. So I think that water's still kind of holding on, and then it usually will jump off a a cliff at some point. 
um, and the fish well, become pretty hard to catch. But <clears throat> have you lost your sense of smell or taste yet? Nope. No, I haven't. You're still fully in charge of all of your facilities. Yep, I sure am. I don't know your if faculties. I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I I think I caught I caught it like really early on. So, mm. um, but yeah, uh, I don't want to talk about that crap, dude. It's super annoying. Stuck at home. Uh, gonna clean yeah. some reels. I'm you gonna, did nice. That's I'm, good. No, I'm I'm going to clean some reels. Like oh, I okay. I did get a ton of stuff in. Yeah, um, dude, you posted a picture. You got some new reels, right? You got new, uh, new baitcaster reels. I I got two, well, two spinning reels and then a baitcaster. What'd um, you get? See that that bad boy? Got some. Oh, a little Vision One Ten. Yeah, a couple from of those. Megabass. You'll like this next thing. Tell me that doesn't look sick. Oh, yeah. What is that? Let me see that little guy. Okay, a little pop bar. Very cool. A little hackle. A little hackle on the lead on the tail hook there. Slobina Rio Rico. It's a pretty high end uh, top water bait. Pretty high end pop bar from my perspective. Yeah. Got some of these. All right. On these. All right, our guest is is on. Let's take a pause, Josh, and we can we can talk with Dr. Sweeten offline here. All right. Hey. Wow, very very nice countdown there. I feel like we're about to launch launch a rocket or something. <laughs> Excellent work, Josh. Uh, so we we just had Dr. Jerry Sweeten of the Ecosystem Connections Institute uh, jump on. And Dr. Sweeten was recommended to us by a listener of our podcast, Alex Deneau, um, who lives up in the Crawfordsville area. And he, he met Dr. Sweeten walking the riverbanks looking for, uh, for fossils and that kind of thing shortly after they took out the uh, Lowhead Dam there in Crawfordsville right above uh, 231. So anyways, we wanted to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sweeten. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of, we talked a little bit about this offline. Um, you know, Dr. Uh, Sweeten is, um, you know, he's a, a, an individual who's heavily involved in, uh, you know, dam removal. And I think that's probably going to be the thrust of our conversation. But uh, why don't you kind of give us a little bit about uh, your background, who you are, where you've worked, all of that kind of stuff. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I'm toward the end of my the career. Foot view. <laughs> that could be a long conversation by the time you get to this <laughs> part of life. <laughs> but I, uh, I um, consider myself a stream ecological uh, restoration scientist. Um, I, uh, I guess most recently I, I finished my career teaching uh, Man at Manchester College. Um, where I, I spent uh, about 15 or 16 years. And, and as you know, perhaps the Eel River flows right by that campus. Uh, and so I, uh, being trained in stream ecology, um, um, I was looking for ways to engage students in, in uh, pragmatic research, undergraduate research. Uh, you know, I, I viewed our work there as um, 
training the next generation of biologists. <laughs> and so I always, I'm very much interested in experiential learning and, and, and research. So through that, through those years, we, we got heavily involved in looking at um, water quality in the eel, particularly non-point source pollution. We did a lot of work with uh, the um, farmers in the, in the area. We had a lot of grants to study water quality, particularly I was interested in the suspended sediment loads relative to my own research interests, which um, is really uh, much of my research has been focused on the effect of suspended sediment on the survival and growth of uh, smallmouth bass or black bass in general. And uh, so from that, I was, I had done, a, I've done a lot of laboratory research on that. Um, and I was looking at the, the experiences I was trying to provide students as sort of a, um, a gateway into trying to field validate some of the results that I would see in the lab. Lab results are one thing, but does it really occur in the real world? So we had we had a number of little research projects with smallmouth in the eel, but also with water quality. That led us into dam removal. Uh, in 2012, we removed two dams, uh, in, one at North Manchester and one at Liberty Mills. And these were the first two dams to be removed in Indiana using the National Fish Passageway Program uh, funds. Um, and so from that, it just... We, we started looking, we were curious actually at that time to know, does taking out a dam do more harm than good? And because there just wasn't much data out there relative to the biological effect of when you take out a dam, does it help the stream or does it hurt it? And so we set up our experimental design in a way that would allow us to look carefully at the pre-removal and the post-removal effect on fish. Uh, and, and again, in particular, we were interested in smallmouth. So we had been doing work on spawning success in smallmouth bass relative to suspended sediment loads. So that was sort of the origin of my interest in dam removal. I didn't, I wasn't born with that. <laughs> it just sort of grew out of my experience at Manchester. Um, so uh, we, um, you know, had, we were very fortunate while there. And then I retired from Manchester in 2018 uh, and thought I was just going to go fishing. My wife and I, we love to fish, and that's what we thought we were going to do. And somehow we ended up starting this small business called Ecosystems Connections Institute, um, I guess maybe driven by um, communities that had been aware of the things that we've done in the eel. Uh, some of the glacial lake regions where uh, you know we're having some issues with lakes. And uh, from that, our little company started and, and led us to all into the state and even into Michigan. So that's the 30,000 yeah. foot level. Yeah, that's, that's, I was going to say, considering all the things that I discovered about you just in my hour and a half to two yeah. hours worth of research before yeah. we got on, I know there's a lot more, but, uh, you know, some of the things that I read about the Eel River, for instance, uh, that there are now 95 miles of that river that are dam free yes. as a result of the several dams that you've had removed there. Yeah. Um, that in 2016, the Eel River was named as a top 10 improved watershed by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service. Yes. Is that, yes. Is that true That's as well? Yes. And then the fish ladder that you personally sought funding for and installed or helped install at the Stockdale Mill is a one-of-a-kind fish ladder yeah. that's used by 47 of the 57 native species in the Eel River. Is that does that all sound about right for your yeah. work on the eel? Uh, yeah, well, that, that kind of is a yeah. thumbnail sketch. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. 
So we actually did all yeah. the uh, research mean, for the uh, slot limit on smallmouth. In the, uh, oh, really? Yeah. So we did a lot of that work for DNR, uh, both in the Tippecanoe River and also the eel. In fact, we did we did two two years of um, study of small black bass in general, but focused on smallmouth and the eel. And then one year we we electrofished, I don't know, like almost 60 miles of the Tippecanoe trying to help them understand the uh, importance of that slot limit. Wow. Okay. And I, I saw that some of your research is also fo- focused on uh, like solids and like the number of bass, I guess, as compared to the right. uh, the amount of suspended sediment and solids that are, that are in a, in a water system. Is that right? So is we, that part of your research as well? Yes. Yeah. In fact, um, we know that suspended sediment, or I'll just call it mud in the water, that is the largest non-point surge pollutant we have in any Indiana stream. You, you all know that if you fish, you, you know that when it rains, systems turn muddy. And so the question is, yeah. what, does, what sort of effect does that have on your class strength of, of fish? And so I did my, my mm-hmm. beginning, my research with Ann Spacey at Purdue University, where I did my PhD work. And uh, we worked collaboratively on that question. And we did, um, as I mentioned, some laboratory assays looking at uh, fresh hatched smallmouth bass. We just, we hatched our own eggs in the lab and then, then exposed them to various concentrations of this, of mud in the water, I'll call it. And, and uh, sure enough, mm-hmm. it, it, it appears that uh, there's a really strong relationship between uh, your class strength, survival, and growth of those small fish uh, to to this to the mud in the water. It, it, it's a little more yeah. compli- not complicated, but the 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 research suggests that it's not just the concentration of the mud in the water, but it's also the duration that the fish is exposed and the life phase of the fish. So the most vulnerable life phase of a smallmouth bass is when it's coming off the yolk sac and beginning to feed visually. That transition period, you can have one rain event at that time if the bass are coming up off the nest, doing that swim up, and it can, it can alter an entire right. year class of fish. It's quite remarkable, wow. actually. I so that's no idea. I guess from an angler's perspective, we always think like flooding during during when they're on the nest yeah. is, you know, deposit sediment and uh-huh. things like that. But I guess the the conclusion of your research, which I read in a that was cited in another paper, was that it has less impact when they're actually like still on the nest, right? Because they can fan the you know, when they're still eggs, they can yes. fan the nest, right? Yes. And then so actually the damage is from these fish not being able to feed visually we when they're that it, little, right? Yeah, we equate it to driving in a fog. And there's been research done. You know, so huh. something like a smallmouth bass, they will, we can measure the, what's called the reactive distance. So a, a, a smallmouth, as well bluegill, most sunfish family fish will do this. When they see a prey item, they will swim up to it and stop and then attack. And it's that when they stop right. and that distance is called the reactive distance. So there's plenty of research that shows that when fish in turbid water, that reactive distance gets shorter. Well, it makes sense. They just can't see a prey item and yeah. the prey item gets larger. So in clear water, the fish can see farther and, 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 and consume maybe smaller prey than they would necessarily need to be if they were in turbid water. And, and so, uh, 
I just took that one step further. I said, okay, so if it does that, then does it really affect their growth? And sure enough, it does, uh, that you can see a significant difference in the growth rate of fish in turbid water compared to clear water. So, in, okay, that's, yeah. So, I mean, that's, I guess for the anglers, if you were listening up, you probably just got some useful fishing information. Yeah. Uh, sort of tucked into a scientific explanation for uh, how smallmouth feed. So, or you might just say it's common sense, uh, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. Cause you, yeah, you know, clear, I guess so. Yeah. Clear water fish can see, and that's what they depend upon for yeah. their capability of feeding its sight. Yeah. That's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, um, and that's, is, that's obviously the same for both smallmouth and largemouth, right? Yeah. That, yep that initial phase when they first come off the nest, that's where they're most vulnerable and most susceptible to, to damage or mortality from turbidity in the water. Right. Yes. Hey, and, Jerry, and so, I got a question for yeah, you. Too. Sure. Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to ask as it relates to Indiana streams, um, you know, I, we've, we've all seen the impact that, um, that you're speaking of with the turbidity of the water what, what do you attribute that to? Is that, you know, I always kind of default to speaking about like agriculture and how, you know, in certain parts of the stream the you know, the farms, you know, is all the way up to the bank. Is that really what, what's causing that? Um, what, what do you attribute mm -hmm. that turbidity to? So we've done a lot of water quality research um, uh, in streams. And uh, <clears throat> so we we think clearly agriculture has an effect. I mean, you anytime you have bare ground, it's vulnerable, and it turns out that. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lay this all at the feet of agriculture in just a minute. But anytime you have, um, if you think about the plant, the, the the sort of the agricultural calendar, when is that soil that field is most vulnerable right after they planted? Well, it turns out that coincides with smallmouth bass spawning. <laughs> so you have this yeah. kind of really dangerous situation that you can get, um, if you get a big rain, um, you know, in 2019, no, 2020, uh, in May, in late May, we had a four inch rain in the north part of the state. And it was devastating. Um, you know, so, and I can tell you that the strong, one of the strongest year classes of fish we've ever seen in the Eel River was 2012. It was a drought year. <laughs> and you could still yeah. to this day, yeah, you can find that year class fish, not too many, but they're out there and they're, they're going to be the larger fish. Yeah. So, you know, I think the agriculture is aware of this. Um, there's a big disconnect between what agriculture sees as an acceptable soil loss and what's ecologically acceptable that the fish will can tolerate. So we, we keep communication open with our farmer neighbors. Um, we're not pointing fingers because they want to keep the soil in place. We don't want it in the water. And so there's, there is precision agricultural techniques, cover fall cover crops and, and uh, no-till farming is really, really showing some promise. Um, so, but we got a ways to go. Now, not, not to pick on farmers too much, because we also know that in urban streams where you have urban areas and you have increased asphalt and concrete, you can change the complete hydrology of a stream. 
And, and you've probably have seen this where if you're now, rather than having water infiltrate into the watershed, now it's just got a direct conduit into the stream and it can blow out meanders. It can, it can cause some serious, serious habitat alterations. So the fish don't care where it comes from. They just know they don't like it. And so it's incumbent on us as human yeah. human intervention. Basically. <laughs> right. And yeah. there you go. So that's what we would. We're, now you're running into to our world of ecological restoration. What can we do to fix it? You can measure it. And, and that's where you got to be careful, not getting bogged down and just monitoring, monitoring this and that without mm-hmm. having that action plan in place is what really separates ecological restoration, because we're constantly, constantly looking for how can we fix this? And unfortunately, we're working, I, I say we're working in the rears because we don't really know what yeah. it was like here before Europeans entered into the landscape here. That's a long answer to a little sure. question. And <laughs> so, no, I mean, you, go ahead, Josh. No, I was going to ask, so when you speak about restoration, um, so I guess is, I'm going to pull it back a little bit, specifically White River. I don't know if you've done any work on the White River, um, runs through Mm -hmm. the city, but, um, there's parts of it, uh, that you can clearly see are silted in Mm -hmm. like, and from a fishing perspective, it's, it, it's very, uh, apparent Mm -hmm. as you fish the stream, this, the sections that are, you know, uh, you can see that the substrate fish well, and then the sections that are, uh, silted in don't fish well is there any way to reverse that like it, when you when a river's sort of silted into the point where the bottom is like you know a mud bottom as opposed to a rock bottom like is that is that something that's irreversible or is that something you, uh, you guys are working on it's a great question repairing and so some of our streams and you see this in the white river there's parts of it that nature gave it a great gift and that great gift that it has is called gradient <laughs> so the steeper that yeah. stream, the less likely you're going to have an issue with with what you just described. And so our streams uh, in Indiana can range from, um, well, down by Logansport. We just took out the last two dams in Logansport in November. Uh, and there the, the stream has a gradient of, of close to 10 feet per mile. And, and uh, wow. up, up in our part of the stream, up in the upper part, it's like two feet per mile. So you have these. I was going to say. All the, all of our listeners in West Virginia and in Virginia and Tennessee, they're all hearing ten feet a mile. That's like nothing. Oh but, yeah, you know, of that's course. Yeah. pretty good for us. Yeah, but we're in the flat, glaciated part. We say it's so flat here, you can watch your dog <laughs> run away for three days. <laughs> so <laughs> we're just kind of we just have a different environment. Uh, but but the short answer to your yeah. question is, uh, I guess, is to I would say it's shut the tap off. We got to reduce the amount of sediment coming in. In fact, I I call it um, the aquatic dust bowl. I wish we could take all of the sediment we see moving through our stream channels and put it in the air and let it blow and people would become aware of it. Right now that we have a generation of of folks who think that that is natural and it's always been that way. With some historical anecdotal evidence, we are quite confident that it didn't used to be that way, that the streams would have run bank clear and, and or bank full and, and crystal clear back in the day. Um, so it, it, we just have to we have to shut the tap off. We've got to reduce the amount that's coming in and the stream will heal itself on its own. 
you can, but you can, you can do some, I mean, some really severe intervention. If you can pinch down the stream um, and, and call it, increase that velocity of the water, but that's what you'd have to do is to try to, to move that sediment on downstream. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. That's one of the other, um, I guess this kind of goes along with the restorative aspect of your work and research was the, uh, I came across your name as being involved with the Riffle Shell Muscle Augmentation Project on the tip of canoe. Um, yeah. Was that when you were still working at Manchester? Yeah. Um, well, uh, so and... I was... Yeah, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, we actually did... We assisted DNR with two species of mussels. One was Northern Riffle Shell in the tip of canoe, and then the other, which I'm more familiar with, our club shell that we, we, we put back into the Eel River Basin, and we're still monitoring those. That was literally one of those experiments. We called it uh, dropping a canary in a coal mine <laughs> because we didn't know wow. if the water quality was sufficient to support this, this federally endangered species. But we put out 150 in, 50 in three locations. The next year, we found 149 of them alive. So that was a tremendous wow. lift. Oh, we were excited. And, and then we got 3,000 yeah. to put in. And so we're still running about 95% survival with that. And so, you know, all even though that's a muscle, you, well, fishermen may say, well, yeah, but that's just a muscle. But to us in the science world, we're going, something's changed. We're getting something right. And if you can fix this ecosystem, that system, the fish will respond. For sure, there's there's a so that's a connection. that's a good sign. Yes, a good sign that our rivers are headed in the right direction when they can support a native species that otherwise it should be there, right, already, and then at some point it was killed off, and now yeah. you're reintroducing so, it. So we yeah. have found plenty of and dead I mean, shells, and we've. I said we found right, plenty to prove of dead that shells. They were there yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, from uh, just reading the paper that you were you were named in, I was I was uh, I found out that there were uh, that a freshwater mussel uh, filters about one gallon of water per hour. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got three thousand mussels in a mm -hmm. river that otherwise had none, I mean, that's a pretty substantial amount of water that's being purified and filtered through, you know, one of nature's. I guess natural uh, water filters and water purifiers. So that's pretty. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, everything is connected. Um, for sure. Right. Um, okay. Well, let's let's kind of move on to uh, to the reason that you're that you're on the podcast here. Yeah. Uh, all this other stuff is great and and fascinating, but um, you know, how many dam removal projects have you been involved with? Twelve. To this point. So we've removed, uh, yep, we've removed six from the Eel Basin. We took out two from Little Indian Creek down near Corydon, actually three. Um, and we have one to take out in Silver Creek uh, near New Albany. Um, I, what am I forgetting? Oh, then, of course, the one in Crawfordsville. And then we also took out one right. uh, up in Cedar Creek near Fort Wayne. So, um, so we've been kind of just sort of where people are curious and want to know how to, how to do that. And um, we, we've been out to help them. We can bring about two thirds of the money uh, that's required to remove a dam for a community through grants. 
Wow. And that's kind of how it works is like a local leader will just reach out and say, hey, we've got this dam that's really not owned by anybody or not being operated. You know, is it something you can help us with? That's kind of the first step. Sometimes it is. They'll reach out to us or we may know about that dam. Uh, and we know that it's listed as a very dangerous dam, especially if there's recreational use. You know, these things kill people. And so I may I have made right. cold calls to folks and I said, hey, uh, do you know? Is there anything that you'd be, would you be interested in in exploring the possibility? Um, I don't I don't do it a heavy handed way at all, and uh, there is liability assumed if if you own a low head dam in a river. In Indiana, we have what's called the common right law, where if it's a non navigable stream, perhaps you know this that that uh, uh, you can own uh, a dam in in a river, um, and so some of these things are privately owned. We know there's some of them that right. clearly you, we, we don't want to go because of their historical significance, like the Stockdale Dam. And so that was the driving force for putting in this prototype fish passageway. Um, and so there we just want to try to work with folks to, one, make them safe. And two, we're all about trying in this ecological restoration movement. Part of the big part of that is providing fish passage because we know that there are genetic consequences to barriers in streams that prevent that forwards and backwards genetic flow. Um, and what uh, I think the other big piece of information that's not maybe commonly known is that our freshwater fish need to migrate upstream and downstream as part of their life history. As much as any salmon that ever goes upstream to lay eggs, our warm water fish need to do the very same thing. Hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, that's, uh, I read, I read somewhere, I don't know, it was a study that said that to remove a, uh, an eight by 100 foot dam, it would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $400,000. Is that anywhere near accurate? Eight by how much? Eight feet by? A hundred feet? Uh, it eight by a hundred? It depends. That might be, a, I would say a little on the high side, um, but it is highly variable. Um, so, it, it just, yeah, I, I'm going to say that's probably uh, somebody's about <laughs> quote, and it, right. it could, sure. but it certainly could cost less. And and uh, I would tell you, we so this stems back to when we were working in the eel basin, we still are documenting um, the response of the fish community uh, above and below, and we want to know about the mussels as well. Uh, and so we, the research that we do on every one of these is way beyond what permit agencies require to remove the dam. Yeah, that's great. I mean, to have somebody like you come in that can not only take care of the, the funding aspect of it, but can also take care of the uh, second and third order effects that come along with it. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, that's pretty fantastic. So. But we're not in the business um, of so, making it worse. We're in the business of trying to make it better. And if the data doesn't support the better side, then we need to retool and, and re-examine what we're trying to do. For sure. Yeah. Hey, um, I, I did have a question specifically, and I know Chris is probably planning on getting into this, but um, so Sugar Creek for us is sort of, we call it our home river. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, anybody that knows Sugar Creek knows how, how special of a place it sure. is, you know, from, you know, a geological perspective, I've learned a lot the past couple of years about like, you know, 
how that all formed and mm. some of the really unique things yes. about it. So when I heard the dam was, you know, coming out, like it, it definitely like, I didn't know how to feel about it. You know, I, I know that that's sort of viewed positively in the, um, you know, in the scientific world of re- dam removal. Um, but I've also caught fish at that dam. <laughs> so I'm like, well, uh, I wonder what that's going to, you know, uh, how that's going to affect it. So can you one speak to like what prompted that specific dam removal? And then two, like, have you guys, uh, done any studies, you know, soon after and like, uh, how it's affected it and how you expected it to affect that, that, uh, river. Great water. questions. So let me just say that we, when we go to a community, and we begin to talk about if we if we if they say yep we want to take this out and this was um, this was being um, a cooperative and collaborative effort between the city of Crawfordsville that that dam was a liability and a very dangerous dam because as you know there's a lot of kayakers and canoers on on that on that stream and and I will tell you there. I, I've spoken to one mom of a young fellow who died at a dam, not not at the Crawfordsville Dam. It's one of the saddest things I've ever experienced in my life is, is that it, it's just such a temptation for somebody in a canoe or kayak who doesn't understand that hydraulic recirculation. So on the human safety side, it's, it's really a no-brainer. And, and the, the city just know, they know that that was such a popular recreational site for them. In terms of the fish, uh, the fishery, so what we do is we, well, first of all, I'm all, I make myself always available to anybody. And I tell them when I go, I said, you know what, if you have one person that wants to meet with me, I will drive to Crawfordsville. It's a two hour drive, but I'll do it to sit down and show data and talk and share um, uh, information that we know. But what we do when we go, we do a pre-removal fish survey. So we, in the case of Crawfordsville, we did uh, 200 meters from the dam downstream, we electrofished it. And we look at all species of fish that are there. And then we also do a habitat assessment. And, and from those data, we can calculate, I don't know if you've ever heard of the index of biotic integrity, ring a bell with you, but no, all right. So that, absolutely not. That's just, <laughs> We're knuckle draggers. I would don't just say, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in your camp. No, no, it's just, it's just <laughs> geeks. I turn into a geek once in a while and we need to boil the world in numbers, <laughs> but I'd rather have a fly rod in my hand a lot of times, but all right, it's, just, it's just an index. It's an indices that's based upon all of the fish that are present and in what numbers they're present. And so we do that uh, and we call that our reference reach. And then we chunk up above the dam. So in, in the case of Crawfordsville, again, we did every 100 meters because that pool wasn't that big. We do 100 meters, we electrofish. We, we take a look at the fish community. We do our calculations. We go up to the next 100 meters. We do the same thing. 100 meters next until we get out of the pool and up to the natural part of the stream. Then once the dam is removed, We'll go back next summer and you guys can join us if you'd like. If you know somebody who would like to join us, come. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, I was just getting ready to ask how I can get on one of those. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're 100%. Okay. In. And yeah. I'll let you know uh, when we're going to go and we're going to go back and do that over. Now, what that's going to be is like a pre and a post removal survey. And I can tell you cool. that in every case, every dam we've removed, 
uh, we see a significant increase, at least 30% increase in that index. The other thing we've learned about smallmouth is that in our work, we've surveyed, we, in the early days, we surveyed hard looking for smallmouth bass spawning in the pools above the dams. And we did, we found very few. And we've seen um, 40 to 50% increase in smallmouth bass spawning after the dams come out. Because what happens, wow. you get, you guys just picked up um, about 600 meters. What would that be in feet? Uh, I don't know. Uh, about 1,800 feet. You, you just picked up that many, that length of new fishing territory in Sugar Creek. That will be, I'm going to predict, will be a, an excellent smallmouth bass fishery once the pools and the riffles begin to redevelop. And it generally takes about a year for the stream to heal and get that development of the riffle pool sequence, you know, where you have the riffles and you have those deep pools and you're looking for back eddies, sure. right? Where, where, you know, those yep. bass are going to spawn. I guarantee you, I'll bet you the biggest Dairy Queen blizzard <laughs> that they make that you're going to see that kind of development in that reach of the stream. And when we go back, we'll see our index scores pop up. That's my, that's my prediction. So that's, but that's what we do. Those not required by permit agencies to do that. Not everybody's doing that, but we do it because fishermen are some of the hardest people to show and convince that this is actually a positive for the stream and not a negative. <laughs> that's yeah. because that's because we're used to talking to each other <laughs> and we're all full of shit we're all telling fishing stories that's like that's like our whole thing we tell fishing stories so we're like this science nerd is talking about indexes and i know he's lying he's telling me a fish story <laughs> oh yeah i've heard uh, i've heard people say that i've had people been in meetings and they would look me square in the eye and say i don't believe your data i go Okay. <laughs> <Nice>. Great. <laughs> How do you do it? Yeah. Uh, and I did hear. Okay. And you don't have to. You don't have to get into this. Oh, if you no. don't want to. Yeah. But but Alex Alex Deneau told me I had to ask you <laughs> about some of the crazy public comments that you got, including did is this true or false? Someone asked you if the dam gets taken out, will the river dry up and reverse current? Um, Is that a real question that was asked? <laughs> yes, but it wasn't Crawfordsville. <laughs> okay. But I have had that. I've had people think the stream is going to go the other direction. I've had people say that no. if you pull the dam out, it's going to run out of water. It, and, and you know, that's those are funny stories. But the way I look at it is, and I know we're on a public podcast, but I look at yeah, it yeah. as I a teaching you. opportunity to help people understand how streams function. <laughs> And water always goes downhill. That's first. <laughs> not wind. It's not wind pushing. It might start going uphill. No, it seems like a lesson that they should have learned on their first camping trip you would when they tried to pee outside. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. 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 The, the one thing I have heard, and, and I do think that there might be some validity to it, is the whole that, you know, so you're when you were speaking about the flow of genetics throughout yes. the river. Yeah. I totally, I've never heard that term before, but that makes a mm -hmm. lot of sense to me, you know, because it, it's isolating, you know, uh, populations of smallmouth that otherwise should be intertwined. Mm -hmm. What about, 
in the modern day when we have an invasive species such as like an Asian carp yeah. that that dam acts as a barrier from it getting further upstream. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like that? Um, is there a trade-off there? Like mm-hmm. what, what's your viewpoint? Great question. Um, well, first of all, the, the dam in Crawfordville would be considered no barrier to an Asian carp. It's way too small. Um, and if they want to go over it, they're going to go. Um, we actually faced this at a high level in the eel because the Eel River Basin bumps up against the Lake Erie Basin at the top end. So the top end of the Eel Basin is up near Huntertown, west of Fort Wayne, which is the Lake Erie Basin. And there's this large yeah. mitigation bank up there. And so we, I wrote an 80 is page. Mommy? Is goes, that the Maumee that, that, that flows up into that area? Yeah, so we have Cedar Creek, which flows then um, ultimately into Lake Erie. And so, um, as you know, lots of people are concerned and there's plenty of Asian carp in the Wabash River, unfortunately. And so we did a risk assessment on that and we're actually going to be doing research uh, this summer. We have funded project to try to understand the response of Asian carp to removal of the Logansport dams. But even the Logansport dams were no barrier for Asian carp. In fact, we have so we have out receivers. These are acoustical tag receivers throughout the eel basin. And we have fish with implanted little transmitters in their stomach, well, in their gut cavity. And, and so we're trying to understand the movement. We have, we've done smallmouth bass this way too. We did a large study. We had a master's thesis published from this uh, study with smallmouth, but um, we're wanting to know where, where, where do fish go? And that's one of the ways you could do it. Well, anyway, we already had an Asian carp in the pool above the dams at Logansport. It was a silver carp. And in fact, this is impressive. It was tagged near Louisville, Kentucky in 2016. It swam oh, this thing, yeah, all the way up and up and over the dam at Logansport. And we, we had a hit on our receiver. <laughs> That's so, got to be wow. 300 miles. Well, probably 250 miles, 300 river miles. Uh, Yeah. Maybe it's a long ways. That's a long way. Yeah. That's a long, long way. Logan sport for, I mean, I think everybody pretty much knows where Louisville is, but Logan sports in the Northern part of the state, in Northern half of Indiana. So that's a pretty good haul, man. That's wild. What were the results of the smallmouth study? Just while you mentioned it. Um, it, it, we, our conclusion from that, Unfortunately, so the unfortunately we only ended up with like one year of data, which is typical for a master's project. And fish mm-hmm. don't care about academia, <laughs> they or, or or master's calendars or anything else. But here's what we took away from it, and it goes back to your your observ- your observation about the genetics. Is essentially what we felt like we had was a one way genetic flow. Fish would go down and over the dams, and they couldn't get back up. And so we end up with Okay. that genetic bottleneck that's happening. I mean, it, those dams have been in that river for 150 years, which is most, that's not an uncommon number. Um, and so that was the conclusion from that study that we knew the, the, the bass moved down because we had these receivers throughout the basin and we could track them. And once they would go over a dam, of course, then the game's over. There's no getting back up. And, and what we hope will happen, and I hope that someday that the eel will be one of your favorite destinations for smallmouth fishing. And I, 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 our hypothesis is that once we get that genetic flow again with the Wabash Basin, with the Wabash River, 
we expect to see a, a bump in, in growth rates and, and size of fish in the eel. So, but th that's a longer answer to uh, uh, the dams that we have. Lowhead dams are no match for an Asian carp, zero. Sure. But we don't expect Asian carp um, to be an issue in streams the size of Sugar Creek or the eel or the tippy canoe. We, we just don't expect them to have any real effect on the fishery. I was going to say, I mean, I guess on, on the one hand, that, that concern definitely makes sense. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I don't know that I've seen any Asian carp below uh, no. the dam on Sugar Creek either. No. So, you know, if you're not seeing them below, I, I guess there's low risk that they would move above it. And I mean, obviously, Asian carp are, are thick in the Wabash. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's not like they're just a few of them. So, yeah, yeah that's that's interesting. Uh, any are there any negatives that um, about removing the the dam there in in Crawfordsville? Do you see any potential negatives? You know, anytime you do, anytime you manage, I don't care if it's a terrestrial system or if you manage an aquatic system, there will be what we call ecological winners, and there's going to be ecological losers. In this case, the ecological losers are going to be things like carp and some of the more sedentary sucker species. Um, there will be a okay. short-term hit on the sediment release that was behind the dam. We view in the Corps of Engineers and all the agencies view the sediment behind the dam as long as it's clean without any toxicant in the toxic material. And let me just take a sidebar. We did um, a pretty extensive sediment sampling before we ever entered into the next phase to make because there was a factory upstream that was known as pcg so i was gonna yep. yeah and we found the yeah. sediment and uh, clean so when we knew we saw no nasty uh, stuff in the sediment at that point you know our position and the agency's position position is that that sediment's already a natural part of the stream and so by releasing it, okay. I, I would say maybe the negative might could be that short-term hit from that pulse of sediment moving through the system. But within a year, our studies suggest that, that all of that tends to equal out and, and life returns to normal. So there's always going to be a short-term hit anytime you manage a place. And taking out a dam is a, a fairly, I would say, major surgery <laughs> to take it out because it's sure. been a long time. Um, but the, the, um, the, I have not worked on any project where we've seen any negative effects that last very long. Um, in fact, I, I would tell you Indian Creek down near Corydon is what it, it was one of the most remarkable turnarounds of a fishery I've ever seen. The smallmouth bass and the spotted bass came into that stream. I, in fact, I almost thought maybe somebody brought them in in a truck. The, the change from year one to year two was unlike anything we've ever seen. So I was actually going to ask you about that because I have fished uh, that um, river before. So is that the, I was there maybe three years ago. When did that, when did you take that dam? 2019. Out? We took out two dams from little. So ending. I fished that. You have. Yes, after the dams. I, yep. Yeah. I've, I was, no, before. Oh, okay. So I, I waited it maybe like three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, and I specifically remember there being a low head dam there. 
Um, so, and I noticed that specifically now that year, I don't remember what the, the water table was at, but it was just a really shallow stream. I'd mm-hmm. never been in it before. And I was like, man, this is super, super shallow. So I wonder, you know, if that dam like evened out the flow a little bit more mm-hmm. than because downstream of the dam, there was nothing, mm-hmm. but no. it's still, still like that then. Well, I mean, it's okay. a, it, it's an, it's in a limestone type environment. We would call it karst. And so it's very right. susceptible to dry years. But what we found is after mm-hmm. we saw the return of the riffle pool development, um, that in those pools, <laughs> it's dynamite. You, you just have to get it to the right place. Well, that's, yeah. And all those pools were buried. That makes sense because it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, did, I didn't see, I didn't see hardly any pools. Like it was just a flat, you yeah. know, straight shot. So that it'll be cool to go back there and see. Uh, what it looks oh, like. Oh yeah. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, so you've had, you've participated in 12 dam removals. Yes. All of the, how many of those were outside of Indiana? None outside of Indiana yet. Okay. Mm-hmm. And out of the, I mean, out of those 12, I mean, that's gotta be, I mean, how many have even been removed all in of, like the last 25 years? All of our, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, probably, I mean, this is a head shake. I mean, not, not many more than 12. No, well, no. We, right? I mean, yeah. you've got to be. Yeah. Probably 15 or so. I mean, you've got to be have involved in all of them, right? I mean, or at least the good majority of the dams that have been removed yeah, out of Indiana water. the majority of them, yeah. But that's, I'm telling you, it's a team sport. So mm-hmm. when you say me, I just want you to know I have lots of collaborators. And uh, the National Fish Passageway Program, you know, they uh, – They've been incredibly doing heavy, heavy lifting for Indiana financially. Um, and uh, um, and they, they've been very generous. So for our designation on the Eel Basin to recognize. But, you know, here's a funny thing, boys. None of that was done with a strategic plan. It was just all, that's what I'm saying. It was a team sport. They were just sort of serendipitous things that came along that we were very fortunate to have the chance to do. And incredibly fortunate to have enough money with those projects to do the research to help answer the questions that that outside of our scientific world that just wants to boil the world in numbers, you know, you, you got to make it practical. I mean, otherwise, it's, it's just a document sitting on a shelf someplace that doesn't do anybody any good. So we've been very fortunate. Right. Has yeah. there uh, has there been any thought? um I, th- I believe there there's been a, a couple fatalities. Uh, it was on the there's a dam on the Blue River. Ugh. I think that runs is it the one that runs through Columbus, Chris, um, or is it Edinburgh? I can't. I can't no, there's the one on it's that's on the Big Blue and it's in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. that's a, that's what I mean, Big Blue. Yeah. Have you have you had any discussions with like the the city of Columbus or It'd Edinburgh? Edinburgh about? Yeah. We actually have met with Edinburgh twice. And um, it turns out that that one needs to go. I, I know. But those people, the folks there in that town are so deeply attached to the dam that they think that they're just severely attached to that dam. And uh, I, I agree with you. It needs mm. for at very many at lots of levels. It needs to be removed. Um, it, but it may take some time. Nature will take it out structurally it's compromised and, and that'll happen eventually 
but it would be nice to go ahead and get it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's surprising. It's surprising that the community is so behind that the existence of that dam, considering, I mean, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just two years ago that like four people yeah. died or something yeah. on the, on that dam. So that's, yeah, that's, that's surprising. Um, it's one I- so yeah, I guess that kind of leads me to oh, go ahead. Uh, just what other, what future projects are you, are you working on? So our next, of course, we continue to look for uh, low head dams that can come out. Um, and if any of your listeners have some in mind that they, they would like for us to look at. Um, we don't go in and strong arm anybody. <laughs> we just we just take a look and, and see if there's willing participants and then try to bring resources to help the communities because these are expensive projects, especially if it's a small town and being able to bring the, the dollars to help with it. And those include the researchy side too. But our next big initiative, at least on the um, uh, restoration side that we're looking at now is the reintroduction of eelgrass. Um, that may be a plant that you're not familiar with. I don't know. Um, it's um, a submer- yeah. We call it submerged aquatic vegetation. Long, slender leaves. Uh, we think, we believe that it at one time was a very common plant in our streams. We suspect, and again, this is where people that do the things like I do, we're often operating in the rears because we don't have data. Um, We're quite confident that the water quality today is much better than it was, but we think atrazine, when atrazine came on the market in the 50s and 60s, that probably wiped out eelgrass. But it turns out that there's, there's a remnant population of eelgrass in the lower part of the eel basin that we've been looking at. And it ha- and we actually have a, a research project going on right now of uh, cultivating this plant. And we have six experimental plots in the basin. And if there was ever a fishery silver bullet to improve fishery in a stream, I will tell you it's eelgrass. Um, when we, mm. yeah, when we electrofish over eelgrass, I'll put this it's very simply, when we take our boat out and we turn the electricity on over that eelgrass, it literally turns silver. You go off the eelgrass wow. and there's literally nothing. <clears throat> and so we've concluded on this on sort of a simple level that our streams are almost like a desert relative to what they would have been like when this plant grew. Now, there's still a fair number of eelgrass plots up in the Tippecanoe River. You may see them. I was going to say, mm-hmm. yes, I have seen yep. that in the Tippecanoe. And so yep. that's our that's our next big initiative. And it's just it's uh, trying to find resources to continue our experiments. And I hope that within the next five years, what we'll have is a full blown uh, restoration initiative to try to f- get it out in the numbers that it can withstand the, the uh, natural pressure that goes on anything that's in in the natural world you know there's a game it's a game of numbers <laughs> and if you can't get that if yeah. you can't get that sort of critical mass up then then uh, you never know but it was like again like dropping that canary in the coal mine we didn't know if it would even if the water quality was even good enough our early results are quite promising and are, are suggesting that the water quality is good enough and now we're just trying to see what that next step would be Okay. Um, so the eelgrass that you re- referenced in the Tippecanoe, is that above the reservoirs? Yeah. Yes. That, probably. Um, that's probably where, where you'd you most likely see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, I was going to comment that 
So we, one of our favorite places to go is the the upper Mississippi River. We go oh, there. Oh yes. Uh, yes. At least once once a year. Yes. And I've I've never been in the sum, summer times. I usually go in the spring. And I went there this summer. And if it, if that's what I think it is, it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's probably no consequence that 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 fishery is like unbelievable. <laughs> it's a great fishery. It is. So. And yes. Well, if you just think about again that three dimensional habitat that's missing. Uh, and as well as for waterfowl and lots of other things that plants extremely important. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Okay. Hmm. Are, are you working on any other dam removal projects right now? Or have you been contacted we, about any potential projects? We have, we have sent in some proposals for next, for the next funding cycle. I, it's too early to really mention those. I, I'd rather not mention where they are, but we do um, okay. have had some people reach out to us. And uh, so we have the fun. We, we write the proposals and they're in They're in. Uh, we won't know until next summer. But if you want to check back, I'd be happy to share that with you. Great. OK, um, so you said if people um, have low head dams that they think, you know, pose a risk or that they just want to talk about, yep. you know, maybe or just or approach you guys about, you know, potentially having work done. How can people get a hold of you? Um, well, they can go to our website. It's just ecosystemsconnections.com. And our contact information there is on there. Or you can follow us on Facebook. Um, I don't, <laughs> my wife does the Facebook for us, but it's really well done. She's done a great job of, of posting our projects. And it's just ecosystems. If you just do ecosystems connections, Facebook, you'll, you'll see us there too. Um, that would probably be the easiest way. I can, or I can give you my phone number if that's helpful. It doesn't matter. But, I mean, it's up to you. Um, if you want a bunch of weirdos calling oh, you yeah. about, about Dan, feel, feel free. Well, so, <laughs> 260-901-0561. And uh, you, I know you, you guys all love to fish, but I would tell you that I love it probably just as much as you do. And uh, I, I uh, even though I do it... F- partly for a living. And we always say fish always bite on electricity. It's nothing like hook and line fishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess you could just go out to the, I just doing some research today, you know, it's a, you know, maybe your, your mileage to the river, I guess, could technically be a write-off, but, uh, but anyways, but you know, All right, you, go well, fishing, hey, uh, you go fishing because you love to why? be where fish live. It's usually peaceful. Well, it's quiet. Yeah. And it's a place we can all find a place to yeah. renew our spirits. And I don't care if you're a scientist or if you're whatever you do. It, it, and, you know, fish treat everybody the same, don't they? They don't care who you are. <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah, agreed. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, hey, uh, Dr. Sweeten, I don't want to take any more of your valuable time. You've got more uh, rivers here to save and uh, <laughs> better things to do than to than to talk to a bunch of uh, listeners to our podcast. But thank you so much for coming on. You're and, welcome. Uh, thank you on a personal note, and, and I think I can speak for Josh as well, but thank you You're for, for uh, your effort, your, your lifetime of work on improving the water quality here in Indiana because truly two of the people looking at you on the screen are the direct beneficiaries of your work, <laughs> and we are passionate anglers. We're river advocates. We're people that, um, I guess, have been most impacted by a lot of the things that you do. And it's important. It's precious. And, you know, we, we yeah. thank you for 
attributing your time and your skills and your efforts towards such a noble endeavor. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for those and kind comments. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Too. You're welcome. This was fun. All right. Thank you. All right. And let's go electrofishing. We'll have to have you back on again to talk maybe about, uh, about muscles or, you know, some of the right. other research that you've done on suspended sediment or whatever, right. but in your groups, I mean, all that type of stuff is, you know, year groups and, and growth rates and all that kind of yes. stuff is great too. Yep. So, okay. Uh, but thanks it, again. Yeah. And, uh, Josh, I think, thanks. I was going to say, we got to get every, we end every podcast by saying free the fighter. Free the fighter. Sign all. <laughs> and, so we we got to uh, get a free the fighter from you. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's hear free the fighter, Dr. Sweeten, and we'll sign off here. A free, free the fighter. What am I supposed to yep, do? Free the fighter. All right. <laughs> No, you got it. You got it. Okay. Uh, Josh, I hope you I hope you don't die of your disgusting disease. Yeah. Thanks again. All right. See you guys. Happy, happy holidays. Thank you.